A few weeks ago, I had a friend, uh, Kent Perrin, who shared a story um, with me. He, he sent me this email, and he said um, he had been home and was doing yard work. In fact, he was doing a lot of yard work. I think he had 32 yards of dirt dumped at his house, and so he was transporting that from the front yard to the backyard where it needed to go. And it was a multi-day project, as you can imagine. And so one of those days, I think it was a Wednesday, he'd been out for several hours and he was hot and sweaty and worn out and tired of shoveling dirt. He had been kind of scooping it off the pile on the ground and putting it on this little trailer that attached to his lawn tractor. And hot, tired, head down, just shoveling, he looks up and he sees a, a motorcycle parked in his driveway and an older gentleman getting off and walking up. And Kent says, hi, can I help you? And the guy said, actually, I'd like to help you. You want a hand? And Kent, with sort of shock in his face, was like, I don't understand. Are you bored? And the guy's like, yes. And so he picks up a shovel and he starts shoveling the dirt. So uh, they start working together. And turns out this gentleman lives about a half a mile away and is 76 years old. His name is Al. Uh, and they work for a while. And Ken can tell that Al is also getting kind of worn out and tired. But uh, they do six or seven more wagon loads of dirt um, before Al says, hey, you know what? I, I did promise my wife I'd come home and do some stuff around the house as well today. And Ken said, well, can I give you something? I mean, I've never met you before and you just spent all this time shoveling dirt with me. And he said, no, I don't want anything. I just, you look like a good guy and I wanted to help you out. And Al got on his motorcycle and he drove away. And I just thought, what an incredible story, right? What an incredible Good Samaritan moment. And, and the more I thought about that, the, the more it struck me that that the power of what this guy named Al did um, was in the, the exchange he was willing to make. I mean, if, if I had unlimited time and unlimited energy and unlimited resources, I would do all kinds of good stuff, right? I mean, I would be, I would be the ultimate good, but I don't. So I'm constantly making choices about where my time and resources and energy will go. Um, and here's a guy that hasn't met Kent before who decides to exchange some of his time, some of his energy, some of his day for a total stranger uh, just to help that person out a little bit. Right? And I thought, boy, that is a, a beautiful image for me of this biblical idea of redemption. Uh, redemption in the Bible quite literally means to exchange something um, for the sake of the wholeness of yourself or another. Right? It's just an exchange for the sake of wholeness for yourself or another. Um, sometimes we exchange things really in, in, in financial ways, right? So we, we redeem coupons to get a discount. We redeem rebates to make some money back, right? Um, and, and, and sometimes in the Bible, redemption does have an economic component. We'll talk about that in a minute. But anytime that you exchange something at some cost to yourself for the wholeness of another, you're engaged in the work of redemption, so I want to think about redemption this morning and, and what it looks to redeem, to buy back. Um, and, and Boaz in our story is contrasted with another potential redeemer. So they're both goels, right? The one is a goel and one is a, a potential goel or kinsman redeemer. Uh, and in this story, there are two ways that Boaz acts as a redeemer, uh, where he exchanges something for the wholeness of another. And the first is related to the property of Naomi. And the second is related to the marriage to Ruth and the line of Elimelech and his, and his name. 
So let's start first with the property. This is a weird moment because if you've been following along with us in, in this series on Ruth, you know this is the very first time we have heard that Naomi has any land. Now we've been talking about how poor Naomi is and how they are gleaning, right? They're literally going into other people's fields and picking up the fallen down um, sheaves of grain. How is it that Naomi has land? So here's what happened. Um, we know that about 10 years beforehand, Naomi and her husband Elimelech um, left with their two children because there was a famine in Israel. They went to Moab where they met Ruth and Orpah. And when they left, it's pretty sure, certain that Elimelech sold the use of his land. Now, I don't want to get too much into the, the, the legal land policies of ancient Israel, but a few things are important to know. Number one, you can't sell land. Okay, so land belongs to you ancestrally and to your clan generally, and you cannot sell it, okay? However, you can sell the use of it. So I can say, for a lump sum up front, I will give you my land for X amount of days, months, weeks, years, and you can use it, till it, harvest it, and whatever you reap from it is yours. But at the end of, at the most, 50 years, it reverts back to me. So when Elimelech leaves Israel because of the famine, we can assume that he sells the use of his land to someone who remains behind. When Naomi comes back a decade later, the land has still not reverted to her, which means he sold it for longer than a, a decade, and there could be um, as many as 40 more years before that land would come back to Naomi. Okay? A uh, couple other technical details you have to understand. Um, Naomi has rights to the land, even though she can't farm on it right now. It technically is hers, only until um, she remarries outside the clan or she dies, at which point in time that land will revert to the nearest kinsman redeemer. Right? That's this gentleman that Boaz has gone to find. This is the person who has the closest claim on the land if Ruth, I'm sorry, if Naomi marries outside the clan or passes away. So Naomi's in a weird situation. She can't use the land for her benefit in any way, but she technically has this title to it. So Boaz comes in and he says, um, hey, um, other Goel, Oh, and I hope you noticed something. What's the name of the other Goel? Yeah, that's right. We have no idea, right? We're not told his name. This is really important. So it, it, there's a moment where, where Boaz says, hey, come here, friend, and sit down. You, you've done this before, right? When you're like, hey, friend. Hey, buddy. I can't remember who you are, but it's so good to see you. Um, the, the Hebrew sounds like so-and-so, right? Hey, so-and-so. And, and, and this is very intentional. So we're going to call this guy Nameless. Okay, we're going to call this guy Nameless. So um, Nameless has a better claim to the land, which means if Naomi was to die or if Naomi was to marry someone outside the clan, Nameless would get the title to her land, right? It's still rented out to someone, but he would have the title. And after at least 50 years, at most 50 years, he would own it completely again. One other detail you have to remember in this story, Nameless knows exactly what's going on with Naomi and Ruth. We're told in Ruth chapter 1, verse 19, that when Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem, they are the talk of the town, okay? So, so Nameless knows that they are in dire straits. 
Nameless knows they don't have any land uh, or they can't use the land they own. Nameless knows they're in desperate poverty and Nameless has done exactly nothing up to this point. Whereas Boaz has done a great deal, Nameless has done nothing. But now the right to come up with the land comes and Nameless, I think we are to understand, thinks to himself, hey, this is the easy route, right? I, I, have, I have dodged the bullet of the optional expectation of being a redeemer to these women. Right? I've dodged the bullet. I, I didn't actually have to do anything hard to help them. And now, rather than waiting for them to just die off so I could get the land, I, I can get it right away. Um, I, I just have to pay the guy who's renting it, and it's mine. And, and, and there is absolutely this sense um, that this, this nameless guy uh, is interested in the quick and easy path. Um, and and I want to suggest to you that redemption is only redemption when it comes at a cost. Redemption is only redemption when it comes at a cost. Um, one of my heroes is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, and you guys all know Bonhoeffer's story. Uh, in, in the um, 1930s, there was a movement in Germany called the Confessing Church Movement where the Christians who refused to accept Hitler as the head of the church uh, instead proclaimed that Christ was the head of the church and would not allow their churches to become instruments of the state, of the Third Reich. And Bonhoeffer ultimately went further than simply refusing to support the state. Uh, he became convinced that the evil of what Hitler was doing was so profound that he needed to personally work to end it. And Bonhoeffer becomes part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. Unfortunately, he is not successful. He's caught. Uh, he's imprisoned in a concentration camp. And before the Allies... Um, break into Germany, he is executed as part of the final solution. Um, but Bonhoeffer's a guy who with his life and with his words understands the value of costly redemption, uh, or as he sometimes calls it, costly grace. I just want to read to you a little bit of, of um, the beginning of the cost of discipleship that he wrote. He says, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sins, the consolations of re religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. An intellectual assent to that idea is held to be of itself uh, sufficient to secure remission of sins. Bonhoeffer says, um, nameless, is cheap because he believes in cheap grace. Right? Nameless is cheap because he thinks that what God has offered him is cheap. Uh, and, and nameless emerges as a, a foil for Boaz um, because he demonstrates to us what our life might look like if we engage in redemption only when it's convenient and comfortable and easy, only when um, it, it works with our time and, and our lives and in our convenience. Phyllis Tribble talks about um, 
our friend Nameless, and she says, since he refused to restore the name of the dead to his inheritance, he himself has no name. Anonymity implies judgment. See, I think cheap redemption leaves us hopeless, lifeless, and nameless. And our indifference to the suffering and the sorrow of others in our life, our uh, denial of their personhood is also a denial of our own. We, we begin to lose ourselves when we can't find the will to offer costly redemption to others. But Boaz is different. Um, Boaz is another story. Um, Boaz shows us what redemption is supposed to look like. Uh, and he does it in the light. He does it publicly and formally and legally before the whole clan so they can see the promise. And he makes it clear that he is not just interested in the land that might benefit him economically at some point in the future. Uh, he's interested in carrying on the name of this family. Now, this is the cost that Nameless doesn't want to pay. Nameless is afraid that if he has children with Ruth, that uh, Ruth's children might one day compete for his inheritance with any children he already has. But Boaz isn't afraid of that cost, right? Uh, and, and he cares so deeply um, for the work of redemption in Ruth's life and Naomi's life and Elimelech's life that he's willing to say, yeah, I'll pay that cost if it comes. Now, this isn't just because he likes Ruth. Okay, and, and please don't misunderstand. Yes, I believe there's a, there's a love that's growing here, but this is not primarily just a love story. It's a story about faithfulness, right? It's a story about integrity. It's a story about honor and character. It's a story about that hesed we talked about last week, the covenant faithfulness. And I think fundamentally, Boaz is willing to offer this costly exchange for the sake of another's wholeness, because he knows that God has worked redemption into his life already. Boaz recognizes the work that God has done in saving his ancestors from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. He knows the story of how they have fallen away and been brought back to God again and again and again. And it is that recognition of God's um, costly exchange for his wholeness that makes him interested in being a redeemer for another. Uh, there's an old um, story uh, about redemption um, that I want to share with you this morning. And it's, um, it's a story about a boy uh, and a man and some birds in a birdcage. Will you play that clip? Excuse me, son. Yeah? What have you got there? Got, got some birds, some wild birds. Really? Yeah. Where'd you get them? Got them in the field over there. There's a field with wild birds. Huh. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind my asking, what are you going to do with them? I want to play games with them. Games? Yeah, I can play games with wild birds, yeah. What kind of games? Um, sometimes I like to poke a stick in there, you know, and they'll be like going, caw, 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 like that, you know? And then sometimes I like to rattle up the cage, and they think it's an earthquake, and they love that. What happens to them after you're done playing games with them? Mm, usually I feed them my cat. Yeah, my cat likes wild birds. I'll tell you what. I am fond of wild birds. You are? Yeah, let me buy them from you. You want to buy my wild birds? Yeah. They're no good for nothing. They can't do no tricks or nothing. And when you open this gate, they're just going to fly away. How much? You're serious? I'm very serious. $5. All right. $10. Okay. $20. Th they're wild birds. They're exotic birds. You found them in a field. An exotic field. All right. 
That's all I got. See you looking at the cage. Yeah. What do you got in there? You know what's in there. Mankind. Found them in the garden. The funny thing is, they put themselves in that cage. I had nothing to do with it. So what's your plans with them? I'm gonna play games with them. Games? What kind of games? All kinds of games. I'm gonna put games into their life that they think is gonna bring them so much pleasure. Then I'm gonna turn the world upside down. I'm gonna make right seem wrong and wrong seem right. And then? They'll be damned for all eternity. My father and I, we're very fond of mankind. I know. We want them to have access to us. So, I'm going to pay for their freedom. You want these humans? Yeah. You know they've promised you everything before. They're going to turn their backs on you. Some will, and some won't. You're serious. Oh, I'm very serious. It'll cost you your tears. I know. Your blood. Yeah. It'll cost you your life. I know. You're willing to give your life. I'm willing to give what it takes. We have an advantage that Boaz didn't have. Boaz knew um, how great his God was. He knew how much his God had already done to redeem him, but he didn't know what we know. He didn't know what cost God was willing to pay for his wholeness. He didn't know what exchange God was willing to make so that he might live the life God had designed for him. We do. We get the whole story and I believe that as Boaz got a little bit of this idea through the story of the Exodus and the promises of God that he was aware of, so we get the full picture and we cannot help but want to be redeemers in the image of our Redeemer. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians. My, we actually didn't read them this morning. My favorite verses in chapter 3 are verses 9 and 10 where Paul says, now, I, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. And, and I love that, that Paul says it's not just that I'm interested in, in the resurrection, right? I mean, yes, sure, eternal life is a great deal, um, but I want to be like Jesus in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings as well. I want to have the privilege of paying the cost of redemption as he paid the cost of redemption for me. I want to be involved in the same work of God um, as he bought me back, so too I want to buy back others. 
We, we do this, we're called to do this in big and small ways. Sometimes it's as simple as um, seeing somebody shoveling dirt and saying, hey, uh, I, I've come to help. You don't know me, but uh, I want to work for your wholeness today. Sometimes it's, it's more dramatic than that. Sometimes it's uh, a lifelong commitment uh, to care and love for someone who can't care and love for us back in the way that we want and yet we trust in some way we get to love Jesus when we love them. Uh, I came across maybe the most um, powerful example of, of redemption this week. Uh, I was reading a, a news article about a guy whose name I'm so sorry I'm almost certainly going to, to pronounce wrongly I have a picture of him that Drew's going to put up. His name is um, Piotr Siwinski. Piotr Siwinski. I, I hope I'm even close to his name. Um, he, he is the um, director of the Auschwitz-Birkenau Memorial and Museum in Poland. And he was in the news this week because um, he heard about a 13-year-old boy um, named Omar Farouk who lives in Nigeria. Omar Farouk was sentenced in a Sharia court, in an Islamic court, for blasphemy. He, as a 13-year-old boy, apparently said something to one of his friends that was disrespectful to Allah. And so he was sentenced to imprisonment for 10 years uh, in a Nigerian prison for this supposed blasphemy. This punishment, according to his lawyer, goes against the Nigerian Constitution and the African Charter of Rights and Welfare of Children. Um, but, but the word got to um, Piot, all the way in Poland. Um, and he recalled that um, Nigeria's president had visited Auschwitz in 2018 and seemed moved. And so um, Piot didn't write a, a, a tweet or send an op-ed, um, he sent an open personal appeal to the president of Nigeria for Omar Farouk to be pardoned. And then he said, however, if it turns out that the child's punishment must absolutely be met, if, if absolutely the crime requires 10 years, 120 months of imprisonment, then I will serve that term and, and I will come and serve a month and I can find 119 other people who will come and each serve one month in a Nigerian prison so that little boy doesn't have to. Uh, and, and the word got out about this and it, and it came to the news and the uh, media came and talked to Piot and said, hey, well, what a neat idea, but it seems um, crazy. Even if the president took you up on it, what is the chance that anyone would be willing do what you're saying to do. And he said, you don't understand. I've already got so many people who've made the offer that I'm turning them away in droves. I, I can't tell you how many people have offered to spend a month in a prison so this little boy won't spend 10 years in one. And I read this story this week and I thought, that is a Boaz act. That is a Jesus act. Uh, and then we who are redeemed live out our call to be redeemers, and we start looking a lot like Jesus. That looks a lot like Jesus to me. So I believe this is our call as, as the followers of Jesus Christ. I believe that we are called to be a people who are willing uh, to, to engage in a costly exchange for the wholeness of another because Christ exchanged everything for our wholeness. 
And when we do that, we get to be involved in the incredible blessing of God in this world. And that's what happens to Boaz. And I just love how this section of Scripture ends. Verse 11 says, Then all the people who were at the gate, along with the elders, said, We are witnesses. Make the Lord, make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children and Epaphra and bestow a name in Bethlehem and through the children that the Lord will give you by this woman may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah beautiful but kind of simple blessings right Uh, may you have children as redeemers um, you may have children uh, perhaps not your own perhaps children of another who become yours as well as you offer up your convenience and your comfort and your freedom for their redemption. Perhaps one of your children might be a 13-year-old boy in Nigeria. The, the blessing is that may you have a name, right? Perhaps not a name that's celebrated in newspapers or uh, on TV, um, but a name that doesn't get on plaques and monuments, but a name that, that has all the weight and power of the kingdom of God behind it, a name uh, that will be celebrated and honored by your Father when He welcomes you into His heavenly kingdom. Uh, and, and may you be part of a family, a house, like the house of Perez and Judah, that, that if we could be a people who worked on redemption the way Christ worked in our redemption, that we might make this world into one house, one family, one people united under one God. I think this is our job, right? Our job as those who have been redeemed is to go out and work redemption in the lives of others. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.